This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. The success of our mission, and indeed our very lives, depended every bit as much on the skill and precision of these human teams as it did on the performance of the space shuttle itself. This was brought home to me most dramatically in the span of a few minutes on an April day in 1990, as I sat in a space shuttle awaiting launch. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. Have you ever stopped to think about how often you trust another person with something that really matters to you? We all do that a lot in everyday life, of course, trusting the bus driver or airline pilot to get us somewhere safely, or other people on our work team or in our company to do their part of the job well. In the astronaut business, we had to trust the large teams of engineers that managed our missions from Earth while we were in orbit. The success of our mission, and indeed our very lives, depended every bit as much on the skill and precision of these human teams as it did on the performance of the space shuttle itself. This was brought home to me most dramatically in the span of a few minutes on an April day in 1990, as I sat in a space shuttle awaiting launch. Here's how I remember those moments. It was April 24. My crewmates and I were strapped into our seats aboard the space shuttle Discovery, watching the countdown clock tick down. We had done the exact same thing 10 days earlier, but the launch got scrubbed that day because of a problem with one of the hydraulic pumps that drives the shuttle's flight controls. The warning light announcing this fault flashed on our displays about five minutes before liftoff, and we knew instantly we weren't going to fly that day. In the shuttle era, it took an intense half day of work to reach the point we were at then, strapped in in just a few minutes from launch. We had studied and trained for more than a year to reach that point, only to have it snatched from our grasp. The five of us were more resigned to the situation than disappointed by the scrub decision, at least at first. We were all experienced pilots, quite familiar with the challenge of resisting our urge to fly when bad weather or a technical glitch meant staying on the ground was the smart thing to do. We listened as the launch control team worked methodically through all the steps needed to make sure it was safe for the ground crew to come back to the launch pad and open the hatch for us. Back at the astronaut crew quarters, we sat around a conference table waiting for word on when the next launch attempt would be. The stoic calm I felt out on the launch pad 
had given way to a vague mix of disorientation and bewilderment. I had strapped in that morning, knowing I was 100% ready for the mission. Our training regimen was like a sturdy staircase built of lessons and simulations that led right up to the launch pad. Now I had to back up some unknown number of steps, some unknown number of days, maybe even weeks, and find my way back to the top of the staircase. This was uncharted and uncomfortable ground for me. Within a few hours, it was clear the delay would be 10 days. So we were given permission to head into town to visit with the family and friends who had come to the Cape to see launch. The swarm of cousins who had come down to see me off smiled and hugged me warmly, but I'm sure most of them felt that swapping a once-in-a-lifetime shuttle launch for my company at dinner was quite a rotten deal. We flew back to Houston the next day and met with our training team about how to use the 10-day delay. Our commander, Lauren Shriver, wisely decided we would not dive back into intensive, high-stress simulation exercises, but instead do a bit of light training and basically stay loose. So that's the backdrop to this story about April 24, 1990. Once again, we're strapped in and ready to go, monitoring the shuttle systems and watching the countdown clock tick down. The hydraulic pumps started normally this time. Our momentary delight evaporated in an instant when we heard one of the launch control engineers say, GLS has issued a hold on the count. A computer system called the Ground Launch Sequencer, or GLS, was controlling all activities in the countdown at this point. It had detected a potentially catastrophic problem. An indicator showed that one of two valves on a line that fed liquid oxygen into the shuttle's fuel tank was still open. The safety guidelines programmed into the launch software required both valves to be closed to give us two lines of defense against a fuel leak. The hold was more than just an error message to the launch control team. It was a hard block that would prevent the GLS from handing control over to the shuttle's onboard computers for the final stage of the countdown. This block meant that the countdown would stop at the handover point, which was 31 seconds before liftoff. Were we going to scrub again? Because the hydraulic pumps were running, the launch controller in charge of the shuttle's main propulsion system and those two valves had to figure out quickly what was wrong and determine if it could be fixed. If he took too long, the pumps wouldn't have enough fuel left for the whole mission, so we would scrub again for that reason. Things did not look promising. The clock stopped at T-31 seconds as expected, and all attention turned to the propulsion system engineer. Our mission, and in a sense the entire space shuttle program, was now on his shoulders, and he did not have the luxury of time. We sat silently in the cockpit, unable to do anything except listen to the goings-on inside the launch control center. The first voice we heard was the launch director, the man in charge of the whole launch process. MPS, what's your status? He demanded of the engineer, using the call sign for main propulsion system. If one valve was truly open, any fault in the other one could let propellant spill overboard instead of feeding into our main engines. That could put us in an orbit that was too low to deploy Hubble, or, if too much leaked out, prevent us from getting to orbit at all. The first would be unfortunate, the second could be deadly. Better to scrub than take that risk. But maybe the valve was okay, and only the indicator was faulty. 
Like used cars, spaceships can also have flaky sensors that mislead you. If that was the case, there was no reason to scrub. But which one was it? What was the right call? We listened as the propulsion engineer talked calmly through the temperatures and pressures in the suspect propellant line and all the other measurements in that area he had on his displays. The indicator said the valve was open. But the temperature readings he saw nearby and the laws of physics told him that wasn't possible. Only explanation had to be that the valve was actually closed. He manually sent a computer command to the valve, hoping that would reset the indicator on his console. It worked. But the control center computers were not convinced. They still had a lock on the countdown clock. MPS, what do you propose? The launch director pressed again. I am prepared to manually override the GLOS software and proceed with the count, MPS replied. The launch director said he was go to do that and alerted the other engineers to prepare to resume the count. Seconds later, we heard the call we had hardly dared hope for. All controllers, the countdown clock will resume on my mark. Three, two, one, mark. The entire episode had taken just two minutes and 52 seconds. 31 seconds later, Discovery roared off the launch pad, heading for the highest orbit any shuttle had yet achieved, where our precious cargo, the Hubble Space Telescope, would begin its mission. Eight and a half minutes after liftoff, Discovery's main engine shut down, and we started preparing our gear for the following day's deployment of the telescope. As we settled down for our supper and the usual end-of-day consultation with our medical officer in Houston's mission control, we were still talking about the outstanding performance of the launch team. Their composure and technical mastery at that high-stakes crunch point it was absolutely dazzling. We felt proud to be part of such an elite team, and of course grateful to the man named MPS, whoever he really was, that we were in orbit again. We lobbied Lauren, our commander, to tell Mission Control that we wanted MPS to be at Edwards Air Force Base in California when we landed five days later, and to be given full VIP treatment. As Lauren put it to Mission Control, we wouldn't be there landing if he hadn't done such a great job during the count. MPS was indeed in Edwards when we landed. Lauren called him out to the assembled crowd during his remarks, and we each hugged and thanked him for his superb work. It was a really glorious moment for the entire team. When I got back to my office in Houston the next day, the first thing I did was put in a request for a recording of the launch control voice circuits during those crucial moments. I had never been so proud to be part of a team as I was on April 24th in those critical seconds listening to a teammate I had never met make a crunch decision with my life and career hanging in the balance. I wanted the recording to remind me both of what a privilege it is to be on such a team and of the caliber of commitment and performance that I myself owe to the team in return. Those few minutes also reminded me that grand achievements are never solo acts. Standing on the shoulders of others, Relying on them when something or someone falters, that's the only way any of us can climb to greater heights. And so when you reach that height, it's really important to share the victory with everyone who contributed to it. Who has helped you on your climb? And how do you share your victories? Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, Along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.
This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.